Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I am CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are going to talk about stress in the workplace, compassion fatigue, and burnout. And my guest is Tiffany Johnson, a local licensed clinical social worker who's been in the field for over 17 years. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you. This is a fabulous topic, I think, and one certainly that uh, many people are interested in. But I'm interested in why you're interested in this topic. What got you into workplace stress and compassion fatigue? Yeah, so I have always been interested in wellness as um, kind of the broad idea. Um, and through my work, years working in healthcare, burnout started to crop up um, in a variety of ways in my colleagues and in myself. And about five years ago, I experienced burnout and started studying it pretty intensively and worked through my own recovery from burnout and supporting my friends, my colleagues, my coworkers, um, so that e either they can recover or prevent experiencing burnout. So, Can you share with us how you knew you were in burnout? <laughs> um, life was hard is, is the easiest way to say that. Um, things were really difficult. Um, relationships were challenged and struggling. Um, my personal health was struggling. It was, it, life was hard. So there's multiple issues that come up when we have burnout. One of the things I think is is to recognize it. But let's talk for a minute about stress, because isn't burnout about stress? Uh, I think they're definitely related, and they're in the same field, but I don't know that they always are exactly related. And what are the symptoms? How how would we know when we're stressed? Um, st some of the symptoms of stress are really similar to fight or flight, um, increased heart rate, increased breathing, um, the feeling of needing to get out of a situation. Um, whereas the burnout can be a lot deeper and a lot more about the person itself, whereas stress is kind of the response to a situation. Interesting. So stress perhaps can be transitory. I mean, it comes and goes, but burnout is something that it sounds like is more insidious and it lasts longer. Uh, it's probably a personal experience as to how long it lasts, but it comes on slowly. Uh, and I think that people find themselves in burnout in a much slower way, whereas stress is kind of immediate. We can see what's causing it in the moment. Right. Fight or flight. I'm stressed mm -hmm. over a deadline or I'm yeah. stressed over not having enough money. Um, and the stress goes away once I'm past the deadline. Yes. Is yeah. that type of thing? I, in, in a lot of ways, yeah. Some stress can be longer lasting, but it, right. it can be seen and it can be resolved. Well, stress can be a motivator, though, too. Yes. Right? I mean, it's, it's a natural thing that happens for us almost on a daily basis. Sometimes. People get stressed when they get a microphone in their face. Absolutely. I mean, it, <laughs> they do. And, and so we all experience stress. So the interesting thing is, is when stress becomes something negative. So the difference between distress and eustress, um, and that's E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. -E -S. And eustress is, there can be kind of a negative component, um, such as a situation like this. There's, there's anxiety that's occurring, um, but it's positive, and it's something that excels us to um, work towards a new goal, try something new. Um, there's a lot of positive that happens in that, whereas the distress 
is more of the negative um, experiences that we have. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, getting out of our comfort zone takes stress, but getting out of our comfort zone can lead us to make decisions that uh, has us grow in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes I think people are afraid to get out of their comfort zone because they don't like the feeling of the stress of it, the fear. It's scary. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very scary. But so it could also be reaching a big goal like um, people who run marathons, their first marathon. There's a lot of stress that leads up to that. And then there's that satisfaction at the end. Yes, that you've reached your goal. Yeah. Yeah. So stress is sort of a part of that entire paradigm, mm -hmm. it would seem to me. Mm -hmm. Let's go back um, to burnout a little bit. That's that's a term that's sort of tossed around liberally, I think. Um, that maybe has, it's not that it's given it a bad rap, but maybe it's taken some of the uh, seriousness out of it when you say, I'm just burnt out. Um, so what, what actually is being burnt out on something? Um, burnout is, when we look at things like compassion fatigue and burnout, they, they get squished together in the same construct. Um, and I'm really bad about doing that too, just putting the and in the middle and putting it together. Um, but burnout is, it's more on the, it's more severe. Um, when people express or experience burnout, they have probably physical illness has developed. Um, they are seeking mental health treatment. Um, there's a little bit of kind of the, the idea that, you know, maybe rock bottom has occurred in burnout, whereas compassion fatigue is when we're we're kind of tired, we're lacking some of that empathy that we usually have, but it's hard to find because we've used our empathy and haven't refilled it back up yet. Um, so, so burnout is the more severe side of things. Compassion fatigue is the empathy empathy side of things, and I think a lot of people say burnout and they probably mean compassion. Uh, um, Compassion, Compassion fatigue. fatigue. Yeah. Let's dissect both of those. So burnout, um, sometimes does a vacation help burnout? It can, but oftentimes what happens is even if the person has the vacation, they come back to the situation and nothing has changed. The situation remains the same. So you get a little bit of a week reprieve, a, like a week's worth of a reprieve, and then you come right back to the same situation. Well, we always carry ourselves with ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. That shadow <laughs> follows us. Exactly. Vacation or not. <laughs> so vacation or moving to another state or, you know, doing something different in our lives doesn't always help the fact that internally we didn't look at the issues that were perhaps causing the burnout. Yeah. And there is a break there. If you if you change jobs, um, the stress of the current job immediately ends. And then you move to the new job, but you bring your same way of approaching life or approaching stress yes. or approaching situations. You bring that to the new job and you can find yourself in a cycle. Right. I mean, it, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I do hear that. Yeah, that that's been around for a very long time. <laughs> but you know what? It's still it's it's still true. I try not to do that. It's still true. <laughs> so let's talk about workplace and burnout. Um and how it's different from just, you know, I'm just tired of getting up and getting to work every day, and or maybe it's too routine for me. Um, burnout ha is a little bit different than just some s dissatisfaction with the routine of the job. 
It is. Um, when people are experiencing burnout, a lot of times they are they start to overfunction. And so there's this, you know, kind of cycle that happens where I was really tired today. I didn't feel like I worked quite as hard as I should have. So tomorrow I'm going to work even harder. I'm going to get there early. I'm going to work there late. And and that's that becomes that slippery slope where we start to get out of alignment with what works for us. Um, and so we start to overfunction when we're experiencing burnout. And then then we're even more tired because now we're over-functioning, trying to make up for the deficits that we're feeling because we didn't work hard enough. We were feeling disconnected earlier in the week or earlier in the month. Um, and then you have things such as interpersonal conflict that comes into that. So in a workplace and especially in a team, now you have one or more people who are tired, who are over-functioning, who are now starting to have interpersonal conflict with each other or with other people. Um, and so it can... It can really start to get a little bit out of control at times. Um, well, let's let's go to the one that you described where you're overcompensating. How does perfectionism uh, move into that? Is that where somebody feels that they need to dot their I's and cross their T's on a continual basis and that causes burnout? Um, so perfectionism in general is one of the risk factors of um, someone who may experience burnout. It's not a definite, but I can say that for myself, I do have some of that perfectionism and it takes a lot for me not to wear myself out trying to make something perfect. Um, dotting the T's and crossing the I's, it's not just the perfectionism or just the person who's doing that because then you look at the organizational stress that's coming into it. And in healthcare, since that's where I spend most of my time, doctors, nurses, even as social workers, when we're documenting in our records, they say, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. And so if something negative happens, your charts get reviewed, and they say, you weren't perfect in your documentation, now now something's wrong. So our organizations push a little bit of that, of that perfectionism because we need it. And then somebody who's already our perfectionist. So you can kind of see how the personal and the organizational clash at times in that situation um, that can be harmful to the employee. So when we're looking at, and we're talking about the workplace, burnout in the workplace, there's numerous factors that go into that. And certainly there's the culture of the organization that goes into that and, um, and how they deal with the stress of an organization. So what are some of the things that an organization can do to, to support their employees so that burnout um, doesn't happen because of the organization. I mean, certainly we, and being a CEO of an organization, I have no control over someone's private life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no control. So they could be having burnout on the job because of their private life. But I always, I also take very seriously the fact that the organization is responsible to create a culture that allows people to uh, be supported. So what can an organization do? Um, there's... A lot that I think can be um, worked on from the organizational factor. So if we think about a policy or procedure, the policy and procedure doesn't care about the staff because the policy or procedure just can't, it's, it's a piece of paper. It literally can't care about the staff. So it's about the people in the organization reviewing those and looking at it from a sustainable perspective. If this policy says that this perfectionism needs to occur, can the team meet that perfectionism? It, it, kind of bringing in the perfectionism, but 
how is that policy written and is it sustainable for the staff? And and it takes a broad view of a policy to see that. It's hard to do because the policy says you have to finish your documentation. You have to do it in this way. You have to be able to build this way. You have to be able to meet these demands. And how do we bring the person into that? It's hard. I don't have a good answer. Well, and um, certainly in the healthcare profession, where things tend to be seen as being immediate, they tend to be seen as urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I personally wouldn't. Um, I would want someone taking care of me who's a perfectionist. I know that sounds awful, but you know, I'd appreciate that surgeon being a perfectionist, and yeah. the same with the nurse who's handling my IVs. Um, so there's a dichotomy on that because perfection in healthcare is something that is sort of necessary to a certain degree. There can be a way to support the staff in what they're doing. So a surgeon has, you know, say five steps to achieving the surgery that he's doing, but he doesn't need to make it eight and he certainly doesn't need to make it five. So how do we maintain this is this is the care that we need to give and how far outside of that can a human sustainably work? So if the surgeon or the doctor or whoever, if they have an eight-hour shift, sticking to that eight-hour shift because they can't sustainably work 12 hours for an extended amount of time. So the organization can help staff maintain their boundaries so that they don't then start to overfunction, um, And the organization can ensure that breaks or lunches or meal times are being um, utilized so that the staff get that time to walk away to regather themselves before they come back to their work. Otherwise, we're going to work through our breaks, we're going to eat lunch while we're typing, and we're going to go into our very next encounter, and we've never had that moment to back off or back away or have some personal time. I get that, and certainly at Access to Healthcare Network, we're very conscious of that. Um, And I don't want to go into too much at Access, but I think our culture really supports the person, and we support the family life. And I think that when I started Access 13 years ago, I knew that I would be hiring people that had families. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I made sure that we accommodated that. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the stress at Access, and it's not that we don't have it, we certainly do, but um, we accommodate that for them. And same with their PTO. But let's get back a little bit to the say, physician or the nurse. Uh, I had on um, a physician from the Northern Nevada Physician Wellness Coalition to Mm -hmm. talk about physician suicide, Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Quinn Polly, And being a part of their, I'm on their board, um, that's certainly an issue that they're grappling with. And that would be exactly what you're talking about, the burnout in physicians. Mm -hmm. Um, Too many patients to see in a day, working too many hours, um, EMR systems that don't function Mm -hmm. the way they need to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And they really are trying to do something to help physicians and their family cope with that burnout issue. One of the things that access to healthcare, and certainly I think in your profession, would be the compassion fatigue. Because... We at Access take care of low-income people, um, almost 10,000 people a month, and some of them are in real crisis. And so we're dealing with um, a population that has an immediate need and doesn't have the income 
to take care of the immediate need. Now you have two things Mm -hmm. to deal with. So what is compassion fatigue and how does that differ than burnout? So interestingly, with compassion fatigue, there are are a lot of definitions. Um, This is a field that it started um, with uh, Christine, Dr. Christine Maslach around 1980, this is kind of 77, 80. Um, there were, there was another researcher before that. Um, I think he was a year or two before that, but there, even in the last 40 years, there's no single one accepted definition of compassion fatigue. They all kind of sound the same, but the one that I like the best is that, um, compassion fatigue is characterized by a deep physical and emotional exhaustion and a pronounced change in the ability to find empathy, sorry, to feel empathy for clients, loved ones, and coworkers. And what I what I hear and what I feel when I say that is the the idea that I'm just tired. I'm tired. I I care about what you're experiencing. I hear what you're experiencing, but the emotion to be attached to that just isn't quite there right now because they don't have the energy to have that emotion. So just an overwhelming exhaustion that that gets felt. Well, if if we're listening to people's stories all day and we're understanding the validity of those stories mm-hmm. and that there isn't what I've found for our staff is that when they can't do anything to help that person. The, the helplessness, yeah. The helplessness. I mean, it, so we... We talk to a lot of people all day long that need health care, but they also have what we call social determinants issues. And it's specifically when we get to the housing. Mm-hmm. We know we're in a housing crunch here in, in northern Nevada, and especially for the low income. So they're about to be homeless, and we can't find any shelter for them other than going to the shelter. And what I've noticed with staff, and it's one of the reasons why we give so much PTO at Access to Healthcare Network, um, we give three weeks vacation plus another, they get about five to six weeks a year wow. of PTO. Um, because we understand, we, and the interesting thing is I didn't put a word to it until you and I talked, that we were aware that compassion fatigue was going to happen if you were doing your job well. It's unfortunately a side effect of being a caring professional. Um, because you do hear those stories of people that are struggling and the human, just the the human suffering that comes along with people who don't have the resources to take care of their lives in the way that they need to. So going to a doctor is great, and 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 there we do have doctors. Sometimes you have to wait for it, but if you don't know where you're going to sleep the night before your doctor's appointment, getting to the doctor's appointment is no longer important. Um, so it's kind of the Maslach hierarchy of needs, we have to address the bottom of our triangle before we can get to the top. And that's food, shelter, clothing, warmth. Um, And and it works for those of us who are their employees as well. We need our own stability before we can kind of give it to others. Right. The whole put your oxygen mask on first idea. So if I haven't slept well, if I didn't eat well, if my home environment isn't stable, it's hard to then go support other people who need that stability. Well, and it seems to me, I think, as I said a few minutes ago, the compassion fatigue is an inevitable conclusion at times for doing your job well. 
I mean, if you're listening to people all day long and finding solutions. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that Access is that we are all problem solvers. Yes. And finding problem solving is solving is the action. We we enjoy that. It keeps mm-hmm. us stimulated. Finding a solution is gives us an intrinsic sense of value. Yeah. So if I'm problem solving and it takes all my energy, but I can't find a solution, then I don't get the intrinsic sense of value at the end of helping trying to help that person. So so you're starting to talk a little bit about compassion satisfaction. Yes. Um, which is that that sense of I'm doing the right thing, I'm helping people, I'm, you know, I'm I'm contributing to the greater good of society. And and that is some of the give and take. We give with our empathy and trying to help solve a problem, but then we also receive the compassion satisfaction, which balances it out. So if you think of it as kind of deposits and withdraws, compassion satisfaction might be a withdrawal. Perhaps there's a really tough situation. Um, There are children involved, there's elderly involved, and they're homeless, and it's going to snow tonight. So we may have, you know, maybe five withdrawals out of that. But we found housing that's safe and sustainable for a long term, so we got three deposits back, and then we went home and had an enjoyable dinner with our loved ones and we got two more deposits back. So, so now we're even, right? We've lost five deposits. We've gotten five, um, we've had five withdrawals. We've gotten five deposits back. And then if we're looking at trying to avoid or prevent ourselves from having compassion fatigue or burnout, we want more deposits than we have withdrawals. Right. So if you have a day where you have no deposits, and nothing but withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, the next day you have more deposits than you have withdrawals to make up for the day before. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. if not, I love the way you you put that together because if not, after a certain amount of time, all we have is withdrawals. Mm-hmm. And as a business CEO, my job is to make sure that they have the tools to have more deposits than withdrawals. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, if we were in an industry where we could only help 2% of the people, um, that's not good. So to make sure that my staff have the tools to be able to do the um, additions, deposits, instead of continual withdrawals. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that makes me think of one of the other things um, when you were asking about what can organizations do and um, recognition becomes part of that. Um, And so recognizing what employees do gives them a deposit, but recognition is hard. Um, And it's sometimes hard for people who may not be used to it or aren't used to that sort of language. So when we recognize staff, we want it to be personal Um, in the moment or as close to the moment as we can. Um, and then we want it to be a little bit more specific. So running down the hall saying, Hey, thanks. I got to run to my meeting and I'm texting right now, but thanks. And run, you know, continuing on the person doesn't really receive that. But if you stop and say, Hey, I really appreciated what you were able to do for that family. I'm sorry. I can't talk to you about it right now, but I just wanted to tell you that was fantastic. And we'll talk about it later. You can still leave and go to your meeting, but but your staff person has then received a deposit of a very specific and personalized recognition. So that's one thing organizations can also do. Yeah, that's very well put. And it seems like it's sort of the trickle-down theory. If 
as you have the top of the food chain sort of at a organization, mm-hmm. their job is to make sure that they're trickling down their appreciation, which then trickles down. And it also can go the other way. If they're trickling down their anger, frustration uh, to the next, and the next is sort of a kick the dog theory. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an unfortunate one when you work in even large systems, even small systems. But I think larger systems, there's many more layers. Yes, so there is. the recognition doesn't, if it trickles, it gets less and less and less as it goes through. Yes, so. that's true. Let's talk about a few other things that we can do at work. Um, break time. Mm-hmm. Giving people break time so that they can re-energize. So I think a lot of organizations give break times. It's up to us to take the break times. Um, which is, it's too easy to say, well, I'll just, I'll just take that 15 minutes. I'll finish my documents. I'll finish my charting. I'll do it later. Um, or it's just a busy day or it's been a busy week. I'll do it later. Um, so it's up to us to take our breaks, which is easier said than done. Right. It's true. It's true. And especially for people that get very focused, and for people that like to finish, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we do the Myers-Briggs at Access uh, for all the staff. And it's interesting, the people that are J's on the Myers-Briggs and people that are P's, and the J people make lists and like to finish things. They like to check things off the list, and they get very focused. And so taking a break to them sometimes is but I need that extra 15 minutes, and then I'll be able to check it off the list. So yeah. it, their sense of satisfaction in checking it off the list is higher than their sense of satisfaction taking a break. Yes, and that and that comes into the perfectionism too. Yes, it if does. If I finish it now, then it's done. It's wrapped up in a pretty bow. Right. Yeah. Which is about how somebody gets their sense of satisfaction. It is. Yeah. It's, it's a very fine line at times, and it's very gray as to when – the way we approach our work or the way we approach our life is beneficial for how we function. Mm -hmm. And then when it's, when it starts to tilt into now it's becoming harmful for us. And do you find that the, there's a lot of talk about millennials. Do you find that the millennials are different than say myself? I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. And um, we had a sense of achievement or at least the articles I've read that perhaps has not trickled down to the millennium uh, group. I don't have any real answer to that. Uh, I'm in the middle. Uh, I think I'm considered a Gen X, I uh-huh. think. Um, so I, I don't have the best answer. I don't know how somebody else's function might be different than mine. Yeah, we, we baby boomers um, tend to want to get things done pretty quickly. It's interesting. Break time workspace uh, with the advent of cubicles and the fact that we try to put more people into a space and they don't have closed offices. Anything about how that adds to the stress level at work? I'm really grateful that I have not, well, I guess I've had a shared office before, but for the most part, I've had individual space. So I don't know a lot about how cubicle work is going. I hear that it's good, but I also take that with a grain of salt because I understand that research, when you develop your hypothesis, you want to prove it true. Um, And so there's you know, I, th- I think there's ways to manipulate those to make it look better than maybe the personal experiences, but I have not dug into that one. Um, employee engagement um, and that we talked about recognition, but it's also about being able to listen to the employees. Mm-hmm. So there was 
don't quote me anyone on any of this, but there was a study that I read quite a while back that the people at work that have the least amount of decision-making have the most stress. So that that study that I read was quite a while back, and they were doing it on when we called people secretaries, and that secretaries who had very little power to be able to say, no, I don't want to get your coffee, I don't want to do this, um, had the most rate of heart disease. It was uh, an interesting study, and that they they sort of correlated the the fact that they had less ability to say no, and it added to their stress, which added to their overall health. So that power that says you have to do this now and you have to do it my way, um, that giving employees the ability to be able to have a say seems like it would decrease the stress in the workplace. So kind of by definition, um, and there there's a lot of definitions of stress also, but it also says um, the lack of control over a situation can result in stress. So absolutely not having control is stressful. Um, in terms of employee engagement, there's there's a piece of that that you said listening to your employees, and that's understanding that they do have um, other lives, understanding what is going on at home or what is your passion at work. Because at work, we come to do a job, but employee engagement is sometimes about understanding that the employee may have interests outside of that specific job and how can they get developed at work for their passion or for their professional interests or how do we understand what their passion and personal interests are at home. Um, If you have an employee who loves to play basketball and you've never talked to them about what they do after work, you're probably pretty disengaged with that staff person. So engagement, I think, is knowing your whole person, the Mm -hmm. whole staff. And then there's engagement as a staff. So engagement with each other mm-hmm. so that we're seeing that the whole staff is interacting at certain times. We have a lot of potlucks at Access. Yeah. We laugh. Yeah, we laugh about it. We have a lot of potlucks. Um, and it's a way for the entire staff, no matter what department you're in, because we have about 125 staff, um, that we get together for potlucks. It's, I think, one of the ways that we've made sure that we that we do employee engagement together. And, and in order, I think, for that to be successful, your employees are already engaged because a potluck in and of itself doesn't always engage staff. Um, and there are ways for staff to still stay disengaged, take their food, go somewhere else, say that they brought their own lunch, eat somewhere else. Um, so there's kind of some pros and cons there that the potluck itself doesn't always give the benefit, um, but that there's a positive culture bringing those people together to eat together. Oh, excellent point. Yeah, excellent point. Food is uh, very big at Access. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of sugar. Yeah. No, not sugar so oh, much good. as people. Um, people really enjoy cooking and bringing in what they've made. And we, uh, we actually, um, at times, have uh, in a part of Access uh, – done pancakes and different things and it's pretty fun but it does bring them all together and we also have uh, quite a few we're a very competitive bunch <laughs> and so we have quite a few things that allow someone contests where you win movie Chili tickets or... well we just had an ugly sweater contest oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was a little ugly That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it uh, there were some interesting sweaters yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty cool. So this compassion fatigue 
Um, let's talk a little bit more about that. Okay. Um, what is secondary traumatic stress? So secondary traumatic stress or vicarious trauma, um, those are the two that are that are so the most closely related. Again, there are so many constructs and so many definitions out there. It's hard to nail down one specific one. Um, but the idea or the the main um, result is that the caregiver starts to display symptoms that might be consistent with having personally experienced whatever trauma happened. And, and it looks a lot like PTSD. And so the caregiver might have Increased feelings of um, not feeling safe. Perhaps perhaps they've known someone who was attacked in a parking lot. So they may feel less safe in a parking lot, less safe at home, um, having intrusive thoughts of the event. Even though it happened to someone else, it's intrusive to the, um, the provider or the person who heard the story. So that's what secondary traumatic stress looks like. And as an employer, how much am I responsible for that? for supporting someone with that. See, I, you know, it's an interesting kind of chicken and egg thing. Yeah. <laughs> I pay somebody a wage. I ask them to do a certain amount of work. If I'm uh, fair on what I ask, then am I responsible to know uh, the trauma that's happened in their life that might be triggered by something that they're dealing with at work? Uh, so I would say the very first part of that is the fact that you're aware of it already shows that you are going to support your staff in that situation. Um, it's a really great question. In terms of responsibility, I don't know. That's a good point. Um, but perhaps going back to how we build our workplace culture, um, how supportive is the culture? Um, how much do the managers listen to what's happening to their staff or know what's happening to their staff in their personal life? Um, so culture definitely plays into that, that supportive environment. In terms of responsibility, though, that's a pretty good question. I don't have an answer for that one. Well, it's an intriguing one. It is. Uh, yeah, I don't um, I don't require a, some sort of definitive answer to that except maybe a thoughtful um, dialogue on the fact that as an employer and I'm paying a wage and I'm asking for a certain amount of work and it's a fair amount of work, then if somebody is triggered by something, is my expectation that they then will um, not let that interfere with their work life? Yeah, well, I think there's always a possibility that it might interfere, but hopefully it's a small interference um, where it can be short-lived because the organization is going to respond to it. And I really feel like if you're already asking the question, you, you are a step ahead of so many other people. Yeah, I get that. Um, uh, uh, Lauren, one of my producers, is sitting here listening to this. I can see her sort of nodding her head. We are very... Um, aware of this at Access. And we're, I, I love the word compassion fatigue. You gave me a new one. You truly did. And compassion satisfaction. I mean, it puts into terms something I think we talk a lot about at Access. Um, because we can only do so much for people. Mm -hmm. If I could write out a $5,000 check to someone to help them get the health care that they need, I would do it. And wouldn't that be? I mean, the, the, uh, the compassion satisfaction on that would just yeah. be off the charts. I'd, <laughs> I'd be floating my way home every night. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, instead we're saying, yes, we can get you that surgery at a discounted rate, but you have to find the money for it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, and sometimes compassion satisfaction is small like that. And it's also hard to see because the negative things are, they show up to us bigger, I guess. That's not exactly how I'd say that. But negative is easier to see than positive. And so when we look at compassion satisfaction, it's, wow, I may not have paid for their health care, but I got them connected with a doctor who had an appointment tomorrow. And that is the satisfaction in right. that. So right. sometimes that's small. Let's talk a little bit about boundaries and self-care because that seems to me that that ties into everything we're talking about. Uh, stress in our lives, stress in the workplace, the compassion, fatigue, compassion, satisfaction. Part of that is our responsibility uh, to have boundaries mm-hmm. and to have self-care. Yeah. So interestingly, I've gotten very interested in, in the self-care um, topic recently because it gets muddled much like you were talking about that burnout gets thrown around and maybe it's losing some of its punch but so does self-care and so one of the things that I've recently started um, distinguishing is the difference between self-care and a coping skill and so a coping skill is the um, it's the short term it's the response to crisis um, something that we do day to day um, depending on what our needs are And then self-care is the long-term restorative, preventative maintenance kinds of activities that we have. And each person is going to have a different answer. So for me, a bubble bath is my self-care. It is my long-term restoration. But for some of my friends, a bubble bath either doesn't work at all or it's a coping skill. It's something that they can give or take every six months. Um, So each of us is going to look at that differently. But we can think of coping skills as... The music you listen to on your way home from work, um, that disconnect time from leaving work to getting home and, and listening to your favorite music, um, calling your your preferred loved one, be it your significant other, your mom, your sister. Those are things that we can do day to day and then more long term. Sometimes that is, we've talked about healthcare. Sometimes that's going to the doctor because that is our long term preventative maintenance kind of activity that sometimes gets dropped off to the side. So each person's going to have a different definition, um, but there is distinguishing between self-care and coping skills. And a lot of times when we say self-care, I think we mean coping skills. Well, and then there's, of course, the issue of whether your coping skill is functional or dysfunctional. Yes. and Effective. Yes. I mean, many times we learn certain coping skills when we're young, then we get to be adults, and then we wonder why it's not working anymore. Or the examples that were set for us mm-hmm. with coping skills. Absolutely. And then they become dysfunctional. And as adults, then we've just carried on some dysfunctional coping skills. I've recently heard of the term um, or the acronym STERBS, S-T-E-R-B-S. And that is the short-term energy-relieving behaviors. Wow. And so these are these are sometimes the um, less healthy activities. Um, substance abuse, um, maybe unsafe sex, gambling is a big one. Um, but but those are things that we can do that we get a pretty immediate relief from. So if somebody uses alcohol as one of their short-term energy-relieving behaviors, you leave work, you go have a beer, now your brain is connected. Beer, short, short-term energy relief, now I can go home. Right. And so it may not be the healthiest way to do it, Running for those who run, um, 
is also a short-term energy-relieving behavior um, in maybe a more healthy way. So I can go to the gym, I can run on the treadmill, or I can go to my local trail, I can run. Now I'm ready to go home. Well, because those short-term fixes work. They do. In the short term. Yeah. You know, so, so you couple go glasses this- of wine and you're <laughs> you're sort of not as stressed about whatever happened during the day. They, That's why they become important to us because they work. They now, are work. they working on our behalf? Are that's they functioning really for us? Are they working on our behalf because it's working? Mm-hmm. And then is there fallout from the short-term fix yeah. that we've got? So you can see that all of these constructs that we've talked about, there's always the the surface level, and then you get Absolutely. deeper. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we've I think we've only just sort of taken a little a little uh, layer off. I mm-hmm. think it it's a much deeper conversation. Do you do workshops locally on this? I have been doing some um, shorter workshops. Um, and I, I'm very interested in, in doing them. I've, I've been with um, one of a nonprofit here in town. I've uh, quarterly, they have quarterly trainings. And so I work with them quarterly and the National Association for Social Workers. I've been able to be with them a couple times. So I do pick up opportunities here and there when I'm able to. So if an organization or a person listening wanted to get a hold of you uh, to talk about doing a workshop, where would they where would they do that, Tiffany? So at this time, the easiest way to do that is an email. Um, I don't know if that's something you can set up on your website or you want me to describe it right now. Yeah, go Give right it. ahead. Okay. So my email is Tiffany, T-I-F-F-A-N-Y dot Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N dot L-C-S-W at gmail.com. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell the people listening? I think we've delved on a lot of topics, but certainly we could get deeper on some of them, and maybe we'll we'll do this again in 2020. Absolutely. Anything Thank you. else you'd like to share? I We've touched on pretty much everything at this yeah, point. So, yeah. yeah, aside from dissecting one of the topics in more detail, um, we've definitely talked about a lot today. Well, I love the uh, compassion fatigue and compassion satisfaction, and I think I'd like to talk to you about coming to Access and doing a uh, workshop for my staff. I think they'd be very interested um, in this and uh, understanding sort of some of those short-term fixes and what happens for them during the day when they can't solve that problem because we know that uh, solving the problem is what makes us feel good when we go home. Yeah. Well, and there's there's a multitude of strategies. So while today we've talked more about the constructs themselves, um, there's a lot of personal strategies that can be used. And I think I've, in my classes, have been armed with about 27 of them. So I'd be happy to share some of the uh, personal strategies that can help resolve that. Well, maybe we'll just do another podcast uh, sometime in 2020, early in 2020, with on those strategies. Seems like that would be an, a good next step. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening uh, to our podcast today. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. And today we've been talking about stress in the workplace, compassion fatigue, burnout, compassion satisfaction. It's been a fabulous conversation. We've been talking with Tiffany Johnson, licensed clinical social worker who is here locally, and she's been a licensed clinical social worker for 17 years. Thank you, Tiffany, for being on. Thank you.